Hey everyone, I'm Phil Albertelli. As usual, imagine if you tuned in one day and it was someone else after uh, 10 years. Anyway, and this of course is The Week in Doubt, a podcast for atheists, agnostics, and whoever. So it's going to be a good old-fashioned news story episode this week. It's been a while since I've done one of those, and I had a number of stories I wanted to cover piling up, so you know, why not? And it might seem a bit off-topic or outside the usual wheelhouse, as I like to say, but the first couple of stories have to do with some recent controversies from the music world. I was at work this past week, and I heard a story regarding Marilyn Manson on the local news. It was actually an update to a story that first broke several years ago. Can't believe how time flies. Initially, at the time the story broke, he was being accused of spitting on someone at a concert he had played uh, in New Hampshire back in 2019, I believe it was. And the story interests me both because I feel like I have a connection to New Hampshire. I live in Massachusetts and New Hampshire is right next door, so to speak, uh, right over the border. And like many Mass residents, I've visited New Hampshire many times throughout my life. Growing up, I had relatives that lived in Nashua. I used to go to the White Mountains area. Friends and I used to visit Hampton Beach in the summers, that kind of thing. And I also found it interesting because I've been a fan of Marilyn Manson's music since the 90s. And for some reason, I was thinking it was a security guard he had spit on, which he may have done at some other point, in fairness, uh, knowing Manson. Maybe I was confusing it with a story about how he supposedly rested his, uh, forgive me, his scrotum or genitals on a security guard's head once, I think. But apparently the person he spit on, and apparently he didn't just spit on her, at the New Hampshire concert in question was actually a female videographer. And I just wanted to fact check myself. Yeah, so this was a long time ago. Time really does fly. It was back in December of 2001. This is Billboard magazine. Manson was charged with assaulting security guard Joshua Kiesler, I think it is, after he alleged he spit on this guy too, so I wasn't wrong. After he allegedly spit on the man's head and rubbed his G-string clad genital area on it during a concert at the DTE Energy Music Theater in Clarkston, Michigan. And you may have noticed a little bit ago I referred to myself as a fan of Manson's music rather than a fan of Marilyn Manson like I used to do because I used to really admire him as a person as well. When I would watch him in interviews, I was always impressed by how much of a good-natured person he seemed. His calm demeanor kind of sounds like David Duchovny, which is interesting because he was actually a guest star on Californication. I was also impressed with how thoughtful, intelligent, and articulate he always sounded. Barring those exceptions like his Talking Dead appearance where he seemed completely zonked, but even then he still came across kind of good-natured and intelligent. But with time, with all these various allegations, etc., and uh, maybe it's also me just kind of maturing with age, when I think about, I know part of rock and roll is being rebellious and wild, right? But as I get older, the idea of someone spitting on another person and that kind of thing, 
in regard to the sexual assault allegations, I think I went into those when that story first broke. That could have been over a year ago now. I don't even know. And I'm not going to go into it again because I feel like it would probably take another hour, hour and a half just to go over all that. And I'm trying to keep this episode relatively short. And I'm going to take each story and kind of... um you know, break the show up into different segments and then upload the separate segments onto YouTube. And for those of you who listen to the audio-only version, I'm going to upload this full-length episode to the podcast feed. But yeah, I think, I mean, I imagine there still is a good side to Marilyn Manson. In some ways, he probably is thoughtful. And obviously, if you've listened to him talk, he is intelligent and, and bright. But I think he has a dual nature. I think there's a part of him that's temperamental, probably narcissistic, and tends to lash out at others and wants to demean others. And I'll just say quickly regarding the sexual assault allegations, I don't know what's true and what's not true. Everyone deserves their day in court. You can go and research those for yourself, you know. But I find myself lately tending to more tending more to refer to myself as a fan of his music rather than a fan of the man himself, sadly. But when the story about him spitting on someone at this concert in New Hampshire resurfaced again, I kind of assumed that he was probably kind of spitting or clearing his nose at the crowd, as still gross as that is. And just in a general way, and it wasn't aimed at anyone in particular, maybe someone in the audience took offense and got hit or something. But it sounds like he singled her out and went out of his way to spit and blow his nose on her specifically, which if, if true is obviously a dick move, as the kids like to say. I used to play live shows with my band, and I couldn't imagine spitting on someone in a million years on or off stage. There's one possibility I thought of that might kind of mitigate it or make it seem more understandable. He's a performer, and he likes to get right in the camera. So maybe he's aiming at the camera and not her, per se, and he's trying to get the image on film of him kind of uh, spitting into the camera or blowing his nose or whatever, right? So... I guess in fairness to Manson, that's one possibility, and if that's the case, at least it wouldn't, have, it wouldn't seem as malicious, or like he was going out of his way to dehumanize this woman by intentionally spitting on her, but I wasn't there, so I don't know if he was, if he was aiming at the camera or aiming at her. I'm sure she still didn't appreciate getting sprayed by his, uh, his various discharges, his, uh, his saliva, etc. But I'll read a bit from this NBC Boston article. And so it's entitled, Marilyn Manson to plead no contest to blowing his nose on videographer in New Hampshire. And it's dated July 18th. And it's by someone named Kathy McCormick. If a judge accepts the plea, Manson would face a sentence of of a $1,200 fine with part of it suspended and 20 hours of community service within six months. And I'm not exactly sure what Manson's net worth is, but I imagine he's probably more concerned about the community service than he is the uh, $1,200. 
And then it continues and kind of repeats itself. Marilyn Manson will plead no contest to blowing his nose on a videographer at a 2019 concert in New Hampshire, according to a filing by his attorney. The rocker, whose legal name is Brian Warner, was charged with two misdemeanor counts of simple assault, stemming from the encounter at the Bank of New Hampshire Pavilion in Guilford on August 19th. 2019. A notice of intent filed Monday says that Manson is expected to plead no contest to only one charge and that the prosecutors would dismiss the other in the fully negotiated plea. A no contest plea means Manson will not contest the charge and does not admit guilt. Manson also would need to remain arrest-free and notify local police of any New Hampshire performances for two years. A judge would have to accept the plea, which is expected to be entered Thursday, in Belknap, I think it is, County Superior Court. That's in place of a final pretrial hearing that was scheduled in advance of his planned August 7th trial. According to a police affidavit, Manson approached videographer Susan Fountain or Fontaine in the venue stage pit area, put his face close to her camera, and spit a, in quotes, big loogie at her. She was struck on both hands with saliva. He is also accused of approaching her a second time, blowing his nose on her arm and hands. Prosecutors plan to dismiss the charge stemming from the first encounter, according to the note. Yeah, so the way it's worded, it's hard to know if he was trying to hit her or the camera. In fairness, he may have just been aiming for the camera. I mean, but if he's going to do something like that, someone should warn the videographers that there's a chance that they might come in contact with bodily fluids or something like that. So at least they can prepare or have some kind of like shield or plastic or some raincoat, I don't know, <laughs> rubber gloves. But um, it says Manson initially pleaded not guilty in 2021. His lawyer had said at the time, the type of filming Fountain or Fontaine was doing commonly exposes videographers to, in quotes, incidental contact with bodily fluids. And here's another quote. The defendant's performance for the past 20 years are well known to include shocking and evocative antics similar to those that occurred here, Barker wrote. The alleged victim consented to exposing herself to potential contact with sweat, saliva, and phlegm in close quarters. Now, I don't know if that's true or not. That would make a world of difference if she knew what was coming and consented. You know, if she was like, rock and roll, yeah, Manson's gonna spit at the camera, we're gonna catch it on video, you know? If that was the case, it would change everything. But his lawyer is saying she consented. I don't know what her story is. Uh, whether or not she consented or whether or not she knew what was coming her way makes a world of difference. It would completely change my opinion, at least, you know? I mean, the fact that she went out of her way to file charges kind of implies that she didn't consent. But, yeah, I don't know. if Very strange. Yeah, I would say if, if she did consent, like if they warned her and she was said she was cool with it, and then he does it, and then she turns around and files charges, that would be pretty crappy on her part. But in fairness to both parties, I guess, I, I don't know what the, what the truth is. Um... Was she warned? Wasn't she warned? Did she consent? Did she not consent? 
I don't know, honestly. And I know that's a probably very unsatisfying way to close out this first segment of the show, but uh, that's the honest truth. But there it is, a, a Manson slash New Hampshire story. And I just want to pop in through the magic of editing to say that the Thursday they mention in the article when Manson was actually supposed to plead no contest has come and gone. I couldn't find any updates online, so I'm not sure what came of that. And then also I'm not sure if my terminology is correct. I was saying file charges instead of press charges, but you guys get my point. I'm not sure which is more appropriate. Maybe I was thinking, you know, file a police report, and ultimately it's the DA who decides what the appropriate charges are, right? And maybe that's the distinction, right? It's the AG or district attorney or sworn law enforcement official who actually file the charges. Anyway, let's move on before I hurt my brain. And so now for the next music story. Usually the last thing I would want to talk about is country music, but as a music lover and as someone who's been singing and writing lyrics since I was a teenager, the subject of music and censorship definitely interests me. So most of you have probably heard about this recent controversy surrounding country music performer Jason Aldean, I think it is, who I didn't even know existed before this. He recently released a video for a song called Try That in a Small Town, I believe. The gist of the song seems to be, don't you know good hooligans and sissy libs try your shenanigans in these parts, or you won't even make it down the road without us good old boys whooping your ass? Uh, something to that effect. In fairness to Mr. Aldean, I don't think the song is necessarily explicitly violent. I added the ass whooping part, but that is the kind of feel or gist. Definitely not my cup of tea. Politically, I tend to lean left, and I've just never cared for country music, with some exceptions like Johnny Cash, etc. I think my biggest problem with country music is the lyrics. Uh, they're too banal or unimaginative for my personal taste, very basic or surface level. Pickup truck won't start, marriage falling apart. Dog died last night, transsexual stole my bud light. So, you know, that actually wasn't too bad for off the cuff. But, uh, but uh, just because I don't like a certain genre of music doesn't mean others can't, obviously, you know. And there's lots of people who do like country. In fact, it's extremely popular. But the topic of censorship comes in because some have suggested that the song promotes violence or that it may have racist undertones because some of the crimes it describes, like the so-called knockout game, perhaps tend to be more generally associated with the inner city or inner city crime. I actually researched the phenomenon of the knockout game a bit earlier today for the sake of the show, and I came across a disturbing case that happened right in nearby Cambridge. I think this was back in the 90s. Apparently, this is a phenomenon that's been around for decades and decades. There's been different variations, and it's gone by different names. But in Cambridge, three young men approached an MIT student who was originally from Norway, and as part of this game, one of them sucker punched him, knocked him to the ground, and for whatever reason, while he was down on the ground, another one stabbed him. And this young Norwegian man died. It's a horrible story. And I believe one, if not 
two of the assailants were white and one was Hispanic. So it's not always African-American kids or, or young men who are the ones taking part in this so-called game. But in some cases and in some areas, there apparently did seem to be a trend of it, uh, of the perpetrators predominantly being young African-American men, maybe uh, people, guys in their teens, into their 20s. And apparently there was a point of contention over the question of just how big of a phenomenon was this? Was it being overly sensationalized or blown out of proportion by the media? Uh, that kind of thing. But I myself have seen plenty of footage, remember, plenty of, of news stories featuring people going up and just sucker punching innocent people in public. So obviously it was happening to some degree, you know. But the point I'm trying to get to in my characteristically very long-winded way is that I think whether or not referencing the knockout game in a song is racist, is kind of in the ear, shall we say, of the beholder. And also, it, you know, I think context matters. Who's referencing it? Why are they referencing it? Obviously, you know, etc. And I believe it's mentioned in the article from Billboard we're going to read. But I believe that Jason Aldean, if I, I hope I'm not butchering his name, that he didn't even write the song, that there was a team of songwriters who wrote it for him. So I don't even know, did he give them input or suggestions? Was it just one of the songwriters' idea to put the knockout game thing in there? Uh, I don't know. And then the song also seems to reference the BLM riots, a fact which some are reading racism into. And part of the video takes place in front of a historic courthouse where apparently a lynching took place. In fairness to Jason Aldean, who once again I didn't even know existed prior to this controversy, I have no idea whether or not he even knew about the history of the courthouse at the time of choosing a location for the video. Um, if he did know, then yeah, that's pretty messed up, but I'm not going to just assume he knew. Uh, I'll give him the benefit of the doubt for what it's worth. But due to the controversy, the Country Music Channel pulled the video out of rotation. And so I'll finally read from the Billboard article I mentioned, and it's dated July 18th. And so it's entitled, Jason Aldean's new track and video, criticized as a pro-gun modern lynching song by some listeners. And here's a quote, most mass shootings occur in small towns. One person tweeted about his tune, try that in a small town. Over the weekend, Jason Aldean made an early exit from his concert in Hartford, Connecticut, due to intense heat. But now the singer-songwriter is again catching heat. Oh, I see what you did there. This time for his new song and music video, Try That in a Small Town, which is garnering a flurry of responses and criticism on social media. Aldean posted the video on social media along with a message, when you grow up in a small town, it's that unspoken rule of we all have each other's backs and we look out for each other. It feels like somewhere along the way that sense of community and respect has gotten lost. Deep down, we are all ready to get back to that. I hope my new music video helps y'all know that you are not alone in feeling that way. Go check it out. I don't like small towns, too boring. I don't like big towns, too busy. I don't like cities. They're like big gray soulless labyrinths. 
There's no pleasing me. I think maybe like if I could live like a hermit in a cave um, on a mountain in the middle of a magical forest, remote from everyone else, that might work. I really need to get back into therapy. Anyway, the story continues. Try That in a Small Town was written by Kelly Lovelace, Kurt Allison, Neil Thrasher, and Tully Kennedy, and produced by Aldine's longtime producer, Michael Knox. Yeah, so according to this, he didn't even write the song himself. And there's plenty of big-name singers out there who don't write their own material, but I think the article did refer to him as a singer-slash-songwriter, so maybe he does write his own material sometimes. But once again, plenty of popular singers have other people write songs for them. In fact, that probably applies to many of the biggest hits in music history. But as someone who once again has been singing and writing lyrics since I was a teenager, and because even if you're singing in front of a crowded stadium, there's still something so personal about communicating through the medium of song or singing, I tend to have more respect for people who write their own lyrics or their own stuff. Uh, there's an increased sense of authenticity when you know the words they're belting out come from them, you know? That's how I feel, at least. There are some exceptions. There's a number of bands I like where the singer's not necessarily the one who writes the lyrics. I think, for instance, with Iron Maiden, the bassist Steve Harris did a lot of the songwriting, including the lyrics. But I think Bruce Dickinson, uh, at least with his solo work, wrote uh, lyrics as well. And I don't want to get too sidetracked, but I recently fell down this YouTube rabbit hole where I was watching video after video of youngish content creators reacting to 80s videos or songs they'd never uh, seen or heard before. And uh, I watched a bunch of videos of young content creators reacting to Devo's Whip It. And then I fell down this Devo rabbit hole. And I actually ended up watching interviews and live performances of Devo. And apparently, I think um, the singer for Devo didn't necessarily write the lyrics. He may have written some of them. I think his name is Mark Mothersbaugh, something like that. Um, I think it was Jerry Casale who wrote a lot of the lyrics, and yet uh, Mother's Ball would sing them. And just for clarity, I think Jerry Casale, who I think he was the bassist, or is the bassist, they're still around, also sang, and so did Mother's Ball's brother, Bob. But I gained a lot of appreciation for Devo as I was researching them. Apparently, they had this whole thing going on where I think at least one of the members, Jerry Casale, maybe another one, were students at Kent State when the Kent State Massacre took place. And so things like the Kent State Massacre and the Vietnam War influenced their political views, and they developed this kind of cynical notion that society was devolving, that... Um, you know, just degrading or devolving into chaos. And that's actually where the name Devo comes from. It's short for devolution. But I'm really digressing. And if any country music fans are watching this or listening to it, I can imagine him going, he don't like James Aldean, but he like Devo. What in tarnation? Anyway, let's get back to the article. 
And so it continues, the song and video have riled some listeners who are taking issue with lyrics that some fans are considering pro-gun and racist. The lyrics begin by describing how those in a small town might react to various incidents, including carjackings and robberies, but the song also lists other infractions in lyrics, such as cuss out a cop, spit in his face, stomp on the flag and light it up, y'all think you're tough. Well, I definitely don't think you should spit in a cop's face. I don't think you should be spitting in anyone's face. And for those of you not listening to the full-length episode, before this I covered a story about Marilyn Manson supposedly spitting on someone at a New Hampshire concert and then getting in legal trouble over it. But, um, cussing someone out, well, I, I actually, I'm a very laid-back guy. I don't yell or cuss out anyone. But I think people should be free to be able to cuss out a cop without worrying that they're going to get a beat down or what's going to happen to them. As cliche or hackneyed of a point as it might seem, I think it's true that our tax dollars pay their salaries and they're supposed to be public servants. They're supposed to be protecting and serving. And I don't think people should have to live in fear that if they step out of line or say the wrong thing, that they're going to get manhandled or beaten up or dragged off to jail. And this will probably upset people, but I really can't be bothered to care whether or not someone burns a flag. To me, what should matter about a country is how the government treats the people, how um, the people treat each other. Uh, to me, at the end of the day, the flag is a cloth symbol. I know it means a lot to many people, and seeing it disrespected really triggers some people. Me, personally, I just, I can't be bothered. It's just, it's, I'm trying to be as honest as possible. That's just how I feel. And I believe, technically, uh, flag burning is protected by the First Amendment. It's considered symbolic speech. And if you're upset with your government, I think burning a flag is a valid form of protest. I don't see... I mean, the only way I could... I mean, I have friends and family that have served in the military. So, and I know some people equate the flag with the military. And if you're disrespecting the flag, you're disrespecting the people that have served or died. I don't necessarily see it that way. There's probably people who have served or are serving who don't necessarily see it that way. And I think it's, once again, a valid form of uh, protest. And then there's a embedded tweet here in this Billboard article. It says, at Jason Aldean, who was on stage during the mass shooting at a Las Vegas concert in 2017. And hate to sound like a broken record, but man, does time fly. That was in 2017, anyway. That killed 60 people and wounded over 400 more. Has recorded a song called Try That in a Small Town about how he and his friends will shoot you if if you try to take their guns. And in fairness to Jason Aldean, once again, I think the violence is kind of implied. It's not explicit. So I don't know if that was necessarily a completely fair characterization of the song, but I'll read the lyrics uh, for that part. It says, got a gun that my granddad gave me. They say one day they're gonna round up. Well, that shit might fly in the city. Good luck. Try that in a small town. And so once again, the threat or the violence is 
implied. It doesn't say specifically that, oh, we're going to shoot you if you try to take our guns. But in fairness to critics, if someone says something like, oh yeah, I'd like to see you try or go ahead and try it, usually the implication is if you do try, you're going to get your ass beat, right? That's how mo what most people would read into that. So the song doesn't explicitly call for violence or anything, but there is this kind of lingering implied threat throughout the song. And then I'll skip down a bit. The video features Aldine performing in front of a small town courthouse, draped with an American flag, interspersed with footage of protests, cars, and flags burning, and smash and grab robberies, followed at the end with images of people raising American flags and talking about showing up to help neighbors. Many on social media criticized the song's messaging, with one commenter noting the choice of filming location for the music video. Well, another commenter called the track a quote-unquote modern lynching song. I don't know if I'd go that far, but once again, there is this kind of lingering threat in the song of implied violence, and they never tell you what they're going to do once you do quote-unquote try that in a small town. Are they going to wrap your knuckles? Are they going to hold you and perform a citizen's arrest? <laughs> or, you know, are they going to kick the shit at you? <laughs> you know? Oh, yeah, I composed myself. Anyway, so there's another tweet. Jason Aldean shot this at the site where a white lynch mob strung Henry Choate up at the Maury County Courthouse. That's a lot of alliteration in Columbia. Yet more alliteration, Tennessee. After dragging his body through the streets with a car in 1927. That's where Aldean chose to sing about murdering people who don't respect police. And in fairness... Once again, I hate to sound like a broken record, implied violence, I think. You know, it doesn't, it, it never talks about, <laughs> explicitly talks about murdering anyone. But I think that's all I really need to read from that article. I'll now give my opinion on the whole censorship angle. So it was pulled out of rotation or country music television stopped playing it. And I think they have the right to do that as a private company. But obviously, you know, then there's the potential for backlash, which there's been. And I think the whole controversy and people complaining about the song and the channel pulling it has resulted in it becoming even more popular and it being driven to the top of the charts, I believe. Now, I feel like I'd be a hypocrite if I said I don't think the song deserves airplay or whatever, because I have very eclectic tastes in music. I'm a music lover. I listen to everything from classical and folk, uh, you know, blues, even like early music, Renaissance stuff, to punk, uh, heavy metal, hard rock, alternative, even really hardcore heavy metal, like death metal. You know, I, I listen to pretty much everything except for country, and I don't really like... Uh, hip-hop that much, with some exceptions, like uh, Beastie Boys, Run DMC, uh, some Snoop Dogg, Cypress Hill, that kind of thing. But I listen to some pretty crazy music, like, I really like The Misfits, I like Slayer, you know, and there's plenty of violent, explicitly violent songs there, you know. And my favorite band, my favorite band since I was a, a young teenager has been The Doors. And famously in the song, The End, the, the Doors have the infamous Oedipal section, you know. And uh, so I'd be a hypocrite if I said that this song 
doesn't deserve airplay or, or that it should be censored. So I don't believe it should be censored. That's my, and that's pretty much all there is to it. Um, you, maybe you were expecting more, but, <laughs> you know, the song isn't my cup of tea, but I don't believe it should be censored. because and I've written violent lyrics. You know, the band I've been in since high school, our music would probably be considered heavy metal, or at least the really heavy side of hard rock. And uh, I've written some pretty dark and disturbing lyrics. I wouldn't want my stuff censored, you know? So... Yeah, I don't have to like the song. I don't have to um, share the politics of Jason Aldean, which I don't, in order to say I believe in free speech when it comes to music. I don't think it should be censored. The country music channel can yank it if they want. Then they'll potentially have to deal with backlash, which it seems they are. But that's my opinion on it. There's my two cents. <laughs> okay. And so I'm back again through the magic of editing. I just wanted to say, since I started recording this episode, there's been an update to the James Aldean controversy story. Apparently, the video was re-released. It's been edited, and it's six seconds shorter. Apparently, some of the Black Lives Matter footage has been removed, and I think people understandably assumed it was removed due to the controversy, but apparently, according to James Aldean, he's claiming that there was a third-party copyright issue, that I think a news station owned the Black Lives Matter footage they were using. And Aldean, or his reps, are also claiming that he didn't personally choose the controversial courthouse location. And I also just want to quickly add or clarify that I believe I say... I believe in free speech when it comes to music. Uh, I believe in free speech in general, with maybe some exceptions like explicit calls to violence, etc. Uh, but anyway, just wanted to add that update. So, one more story, and this one's a bit outside the usual wheelhouse, too. But it's a story that I think should remind one of the value of skepticism. And in that sense, perhaps it still is inside the wheelhouse of the show. But anyway, everyone's probably heard of the movie The Sound of Freedom by now. It stars Jim Caviezel, who you might remember from Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ. Caviezel played Jesus in that film, of course. And in The Sound of Freedom, which is supposedly based on true events, he plays Tim Ballard, I believe it is who both in the movie, I believe, I haven't seen it yet to be fair, and in real life runs an organization called Operation Underground Railroad, or OUR, the aim of which is to combat human sex trafficking, especially the trafficking of children. And there are some people out there who have called some of Tim Ballard's claims or the methods of OUR into question. But what drew me to the story is the adrenochrome angle. I'm a big fan of counterculture literature. I used to read a lot of beat literature like Kerouac, Ginsberg, Burroughs, etc. And then stuff like Tom Wolfe's Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test, uh, Hunter S. Thompson's Fair and Loathing in Las Vegas. And in fact, the film version of that movie starring Johnny Depp is one of my all-time favorite films. And if you've 
ever seen it, you'll probably remember the adrenochrome scene. It's touted as this rare, super-powerful drug that needs to be harvested from a human body. And in the book version, I believe it's the lawyer character who says, in quotes, There's only one source for this stuff. The adrenaline glands from a living human body. It's no good if you get it out of a corpse. Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, the book, came out in 1971, I believe, and a couple of years later, in 73, uh, in his book Fear and Loathing on the Campaign Trail, 72, Thompson mentions Adrenochrome again, saying in the footnotes, It was sometime after midnight in a ratty hotel room, and my memory of the conversation is hazy, due to massive ingestion of booze, fatback, and 40 cc's of adrenochrome. And another of my favorite books is Aldous Huxley's The Doors of Perception, and I had completely forgotten about this, but apparently Huxley refers to adrenochrome in the book, admitting that he himself had never taken it, but stating that the effects are supposedly similar to mescaline intoxication. Now, I have to admit, I've seen the film version of A Clockwork Orange, but I've never read the book. But apparently, adrenochrome is referred to as drenchrome in it. And here's a quote. They had no license for selling liquor, but there was no law yet against prodding some of the new veshes, I think it is, which they used to put in the old maloco, so you could peat it with veliset, or synthamesk, or drenchrome, or one or two other veshes. I'm probably uh, butchering the slang, but you get the point. I have a close friend who did read the book version, and they were just talking about having to try to get used to all this made-up slang as you're kind of slogging through the book. And slogging might be a poor choice of words, you know, apparently the book's quite good. But uh, anyway, and the reason why I'm talking about adrenochrome in regard to Tim Ballard and the Sound of Freedom is because I had noticed a Jordan Peterson video in my YouTube feed, and it was an interview with uh, Tim Ballard and Jim Caviezel, and I'm not even really sure why I clicked on it because... I don't really consume a lot of Jordan Peterson content, you know, that much anymore. But I think maybe I was just curious because he was interviewing a fairly big-named actor, Jim Caviezel. And I think I was also just curious to see how Jim Caviezel would handle himself during the interview because supposedly he's kind of gone down the QAnon rabbit hole to some degree. QAnon, a movement which came out of the infamous internet cesspit known as 4chan, if I'm not mistaken. And speaking of QAnon, there's a related topic I've been wanting to cover, but I keep putting it off. I keep hearing these crazy stories about how some QAnon followers or believers think that JFK Jr., or in some versions, JFK himself, are going to return at an appointed time. And when I hear these stories, my mind automatically goes to the infancy of Christianity and beliefs about Jesus's imminent return. Uh, you know, every generation thinks theirs is going to be the one in which Christ returns, but been 2,000 years now and everyone's still waiting. And uh, I wondered, is, could something similar have happened that sparked Christianity? Uh, you know, a charismatic leader dies, and then people start throwing the idea out there that 
He's coming back, and then these ideas or beliefs spread like a contagion, and you got yourself a religion. Maybe 2,000 years from now, if we don't destroy ourselves first, people will be standing behind pulpits talking about the imminent return of JFK and his son. You know, the, the father and the, and the son. Sounds like something you'd see in a Futurama episode if they haven't already done it. But anyway, in the interview that Jordan Peterson did with Jim Caviezel and Tim Ballard, Ballard brings up adrenochrome, and I think Caviezel has actually brought up adrenochrome before. And it's strange. Ballard embraces some QAnon beliefs, like adrenochrome and satanic ritual abuse, while simultaneously trying to distance himself from QAnon. But before we dig into the clips, I should state that adrenochrome is a real substance. Apparently, it can be derived by oxidizing adrenaline, epinephrine, in a lab. No need to harvest it from a body, as I understand. Apparently, it had been a topic of study decades ago because doctors thought that it, adrenochrome, may play a role in schizophrenia, and supposedly, as suggested by Huxley, it can induce mescaline-like hallucinations. And so I'll read a bit from this McGill University article, and it's by Joe Schwartz, I think it is, PhD, and this was published in 2022, so not that long ago, and it's under uh, pseudoscience. Yeah, it's McGill's Office for Science and Society, Separating Sense from Nonsense. And uh, so it begins, there's only one source for this stuff, the adrenaline glands from a living human body. And that's the quote I already read. That bit of misinformation found in Hunter S. Thompson's 1971 psychedelic classic, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, likely planted the seed that grew into one of the most outlandish and repugnant of all conspiracy theories. That would be the ludicrous QAnon claim that Hollywood celebrities and quote-unquote liberal elite politicians are kidnapping children to harvest their blood. QAnon is a not-so-fringe baseless theory that a government agent, Q, is a source of continuous information about the quote-unquote deep state or deep state secrets, such as the existence of a global cabal of uh, P-word that I don't want to get me demonetized, um, who thirst for the blood of children. Why? The farcical QAnon rationale is that they are using the blood as a source of adrenochrome, a chemical that supposedly has psychedelic properties and also holds the promise of immortality. Now, I'm also going to play some clips that aren't related to the Peterson interview in a bit, and in one of them, there's a guy talking about how you can basically get adrenochrome from breaking open an EpiPen, an epinephrine pen. And I'm like, if you, if adrenochrome could really make you immortal, you know, I mean, we could all be, you know, snapping open epinephrine pens and drinking that crap. Um, I'm, I'm in no hurry to die. I, I, if I thought you could become immortal by uh, slurping <laughs> the contents of an EpiPen, you know, sign me up. But I'll continue with this McGill article. How did Thompson come to involve adrenochrome in his story in the first place, describing it as, quote-unquote, making pure mescaline seem like ginger beer? Somewhere along the line, he likely came across the work of Canadian psychiatrist 
Abram Hoffer and Humphrey Osmond, who in the 1950s had noted a similarity between the symptoms of schizophrenia and the effects of mescaline, a naturally occurring hallucinogen found in the peyote cactus. Mescaline is not produced by the body, but the two scientists wondered if some substance with a similar molecular structure is produced under some circumstance, possibly causing schizophrenia. Since adrenaline shares a basic molecular structure with mescaline, it was a candidate for involvement. It was clear that adrenaline itself, the famous fight-or-flight hormone that is present in everyone's bloodstream, could not be the culprit, but perhaps some error in its metabolism could produce a mind-altering substance. A literature search of the chemistry of adrenaline revealed that in the lab it can be oxidized to a compound called adrenochrome, with the chrome ending deriving from the Greek word for color, since adrenochrome has a dark violet hue. At at this point, the psychiatrist, in somewhat of a foolhardy fashion, tested the effects of this chemical on themselves. Indeed, adrenochrome produced hallucinations. Maybe Hoffer and Osmond theorized adrenaline is also oxidized in the body to adrenochrome, and due to some faulty biochemistry, the adrenochrome builds up and triggers schizophrenia, since adrenaline is known to form in the body by the addition of a methyl group, a carbon atom with three hydrogens, to its precursor noradrenaline. Dr. Hoffer postulated that the B vitamin niacin, being a methyl acceptor, would stall this reaction. Furthermore, Vitamin C, an antioxidant, might prevent adrenaline from being oxidized to adrenochrome. Thus was born the, in quotes, adrenochrome hypothesis of schizophrenia. Doctors Hoffer and Osman reported successful treatment of schizophrenics with megadoses of niacin and vitamin C, but a number of follow-up studies by others failed to confirm any benefit. The adrenochrome hypothesis faded into the background, but the reputed hallucinogenic effect of adrenochrome probably stimulated Hunter Thompson to include the drug in his novel. Adrenochrome also made it into the 1998 movie version of the book, and then in 2000. 2017 starred in a totally forgettable film, Adrenochrome, in which a young American veteran confronts some psychos in California who are on a murderous spree to extract the psychedelic compound from their victim's adrenal glands. The stage was now set for QAnon's perverse fabricated tale that a P-word ring of Democratic politicians and Hollywood celebrities is engaged in satanic sacrifices culminating in slurping the blood of massacre children. To make matters worse, this crackpot lunacy has anti-Semitic overtones, accusations that Jews use the blood of Christian children to make matzah for Passover have a long appalling history. And that's true in the Middle Ages. You had blood libel, you had all these lurid accusations against the already marginalized uh, Jewish community in Europe. Uh, yeah, and there, there are those overtones within uh, these crazy QAnon beliefs. And so once again, adrenochrome is apparently a known substance that can be synthesized in a lab. You don't have to harvest it from a human body. And as I understand it, it is psychoactive, but it's not some super drug as described in Fear and Loathing. In fact, I believe uh, Terry Gilliam, is it, uh, of Monty Python, 
fame was actually the director of the movie version of Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. He basically admits that the version of the substance that you find in his movie and in Hunter S. Thompson's writings is like a fictionalized exaggeration. Um, you know, but uh, anyway, let's get to some clips. And so this first clip from the interview Caviezel and Ballard did with Jordan Peterson has Ballard mentioning satanic ritual abuse in passing. I mean, these are real cases where they've, they've uh, kidnapped women, um, as young as 13-year-olds and children, and they impregnate them, they rape them, and, and they make babies, and they take these babies and sell them for their organs, sell them for sex, sell them for satanic ritual abuse. Like, it's, it's, it does sound crazy. That's why I film it. Our operations, we film our operations so that we can show the world this is very real. It's really happening. Now, I was a kid during the satanic panic era of the 1980s. And I think that's when you really started to hear the term satanic ritual abuse. And often you'd hear the term in relation to something called recovered memory. You'd have people going to psychiatrists or therapists who would kind of hypnotize them or put them under and then help them supposedly uncover these horrible memories from their childhood that were so traumatic that they buried. And people would come up with all these lurid supposed memories of having been sexually abused by satanic cults, um, even their own parents or family. And it ended up turning out that, for the most part, if not entirely, these cases were BS. And you had... Um, many innocent people, family members, parents being accused of being Satanist or abusing children when they never had. And I'll just briefly read a bit from this article from the Psychiatric Times. And so it says, just 25 years ago, American psychiatry was infected by a psychic pandemic that originated outside the profession. In 1983, it broke out of a reservoir, a reservoir of religious, legal, psychotherapeutic, and mass media mixing bowls. And I should mention for clarity, this article is dated 2014. That's why it says only 25 years ago. But I'll continue. Children in U.S. daycare centers and adults in psychotherapy told two distinct versions of their malady. By 1988, some elite members of the American Psychiatric Association were making it worse. They had become its vectors. Then other elite psychiatrists stepped in to quarantine the profession. Eventually, just like the last wave of influenza pandemic after 1994, it ended as suddenly and incomprehensibly as it had started. As our medical schools and graduate programs fill with students who were born after 1989, we meet young mental health professionals in training who have no knowledge or living memory of the satanic ritual abuse moral panic of the 1980s and early 1990s. But perhaps they should. Cautionary tales may prevent the recurrence of pyrogenic cultural fantasies and the devastating clinical mistakes they inspire. But who should tell this tale? 
To those of us who are old enough to have been there, that era already seems like a curious relic of the past, bracketed in our memory palaces behind a door we are loath to open again. In the 1980s, thousands of patients insisted that they were recovering childhood memories of physical and sexual abuse during satanic cult rituals and goodbye monetization. Anyway, in addition to the red or black robes of the abusers and other paraphernalia of devil worship, familiar to any horror film devotee or devotee, these memories often included the ritual sacrificial murder of children, blood drinking, cannibalism, bestiality, and incest. Definitely goodbye monetization. Famous believers in SRA, satanic ritual abuse, ranged from Gloria Steinem to Pat Robertson. A prominent historian of religion has argued that, in quotes, the emergence of SRA motifs served as a kind of feminist and evangelical Christian pornography. And I'm laughing or chuckling because I've never heard a connection made before between satanic ritual abuse and feminism. Um, but maybe there's some angle I'm overlooking. I was young at the time. And it continues. Clinicians who then believed in the factual basis of the claims, and there were many, have probably spent the last 30 years asking themselves, how could I have been so fill in the blank? Or perhaps they are still saying to themselves, as authors of one book suggest in their title, mistakes were made, but not by me. And here's a little blurb from Wikipedia, and I know, I know Wikipedia. During the 1980s and 1990s, a moral panic about alleged satanic ritual abuse occurred, mainly in parts of the English-speaking world. This was propagated by certain psychotherapists, social workers, Christian fundamentalists, and law enforcement officials. Some of the cases ended in prosecution and imprisonment. Many, but not all of those imprisoned, have been released. And so it's scary looking back. It's kind of like the Salem witch trials minus the executions that I know of. Uh, we might tend to look back at something like the Salem witch trials and think, oh, they were so primitive and superstitious, that could never happen again. But essentially, that's kind of what the satanic panic was. And that's in, you know, recent or living memory. And a topic that I thought about dedicating an episode to, you know, over the years, but I've just never gotten around to it, is theistic Satanism. As I often talk about on the show, when you hear about Satanism nowadays, um, the two biggest Satanic organizations, arguably the biggest, or, or two of the most well-known, are, of course, the Church of Satan, founded by the late Anton LaVey, and then there's the Salem, Massachusetts-based uh, Satanic Temple, which is essentially a secular humanist organization that engages in social activism, uh, defending the separation of church and state, um, defending reproductive rights, that kind of thing. And neither organization believes in a literal devil. They're both essentially atheistic organizations. They view Satan as just a symbol of free thought, rebellion, that kind of thing. But, you know, are there theistic Satanists out there somewhere in the, out, out in the world somewhere? And I can remember back in my day, even when we had this whole satanic panic thing going on in this hysteria about uh, satanic ritual abuse, there were, you know, when I was a young metalhead, there were stories about young 
kids who were really into heavy metal. And at the time, there were a lot of, um, there was a lot of dark heavy metal that utilized satanic cover uh, album art and sang about satanic subject matter, etc. Uh, you know, Slayer, Venom, stuff like that. That's undeniable. And I think there were cases of kind of disaffected, misanthropic um, kids who fancied themselves devil worshippers who maybe uh, killed at, went out in the woods and killed animals as debased and disgusting, etc., as it is to think about. And I believe there's even been relatively rare cases of disturbed or disaffected youths who are into really dark stuff and claim to have, you know, worshipped or idolized the devil killing people, such as I think there were two girls in Italy back around 2000, roughly, who killed a nun. And then there was the famous case of uh, that little group of kids who thought they were vampires who killed one of the kids' parents. I think that was back around 1996. I think the ringleader's name was Rod Farrell. Uh, yeah, very disturbing and depressing case. I remember back before I was really online, there used to be just true crime stuff always on A&E and channels like that. And I remember seeing a couple of uh, documentaries about the case. And I don't know if that little vampire gang claimed to be Satanist or not. But yeah, there's been cases of young disaffected people claiming to worship the devil and killing animals, sometimes even people. And uh, so in that sense, there are or have been technically theistic Satanists. But I mean, how widespread is theistic Satanism? Are there any big theistic Satanist organizations out there? Maybe. Um, but once again, the whole thing about the satanic panic uh, the satanic ritual abuse, that ended up being an unsubstantiated, uh, well, moral panic. But on a quick side note, because I mentioned Slayer, uh, I was watching some interviews and videos about Slayer recently, and it, I've known this for a while. The guitarist, Kerry King, I believe is an atheist, or he doesn't really believe in God and has kind of a chip on his shoulder against religion, uh, but he's not a Satanist. And neither is the singer Tom Araya, who I couldn't believe how kind of good-natured, almost jolly the guy is in interviews. And it turns out Tom Araya actually does believe in a higher power, and I believe he actually considers himself Catholic. So uh, despite how dark they are and how dark the and, and satanic-looking the album art is and everything, they claim that was always kind of a, a thing they used to scare people, but apparently Slayer not satanic. And it was also interesting to note, I was watching an interview with uh, Tom Araya, and he was saying that prior to being asked to join Slayer, he actually didn't even know what the heck heavy metal was. And he preferred kind of old 60s rock bands like Cream and that kind of thing. And the band members had to introduce him to groups like Iron Maiden and heavy metal in general. And here's me complaining about time going by too quickly again, but the guys in Slayer are in their late 50s and 60s. I think Tom Araya is in his 60s now. And I mentioned Devo earlier. The guys in Devo are in their 70s. 
And yeah, so the 80s were like 40 years ago. That is so insane. So the distance between us and the 80s is now like the distance between people in the 80s and the 1940s. That just absolutely blows my mind. And in a sense, as someone who remembers the 80s, it was such like a colorful period. The music sounded so modern and innovative. Um, it was like this super colorful neon time that just seemed to come out of a vacuum, you know? So thinking about it as being 40 years ago is so weird. But on a positive note, if you go on YouTube and look for live performances from Devo from 2022, 2023, they still sound as sharp as ever. They sound absolutely incredible to the point, and hopefully I'm not exaggerating, where if you didn't have any video, you were just going by the audio, you wouldn't be able to tell the difference between a Devo performance from the 80s and a Devo performance now, other than maybe the recording quality. They are just still on top of their game. They, ob they obviously look a lot older, but they're one of those bands that have not lost their chops over the years. They sound absolutely incredible. And I think they're doing their farewell tour this year. It may even have uh, already started. Uh, Iggy Pop still uh, plays live too, and I think he's like 76. Anyway, uh, I'm getting way too sidetracked uh, by my interest in music. Let's get back on track. Okay, so satanic ritual abuse and... Uh, yeah, so when I heard Tim Ballard talking about satanic ritual abuse as someone who remembers the satanic panic and how much of a how much of a hoax the satanic ritual abuse scandal or hysteria ended up being, it definitely raised an eyebrow, you know? And so my take regarding Tim Ballard is I think life isn't always cut and dry. It's not always black and white or, um, you know, I think often the truth is somewhere in the middle. I don't think that Tim Ballard is a con man. At the same time, I think he, he may be something of a loose cannon. I know some people, as I said before, kind of question some of his claims, some of his methods. Uh, I think his heart is probably in the right place. I think he really is committed to the cause of ending human trafficking, at least I hope so. It's a very noble goal, and it's an important cause. But something does seem a little off to me. He seems kind of too quick to employ terms like satanic ritual abuse, which, you know, that's a term you usually only hear in reference to, once again, the satanic panic hysteria, or too quick to latch on to QAnon or QAnon-adjacent ideas, like the elites are harvesting adrenochrome from children, etc. And speaking of that, I'll play, um, I think this is the clip where he mentions adrenochrome. Yeah, absolutely. We, um, that's, that's, that's a lie on Wikipedia. We have absolutely in our FAQs for years have, have condemned the majority of, of what we see um, with conspiracy theories. Uh, so I, I, they like to attribute me to the QAnon movement. Um, there may be some truths in there, but there's so many falsehoods on top of that. So our, our FAQs refute that immediately um, because it, it can it, it discredits the movement. In fact, I would go so far as to consider that maybe certain people who don't want this known are responsible for some of the conspiracy theories in order to discredit the movement. 
Um, and uh, they go too far. They go too far in, in, in their assessment of things. But yeah, we absolutely have dis disavowed uh, what is generally coming out of, of, of QAnon. So that's him distancing himself from QAnon. So maybe the adrenochrome clip is the next one. I mean, I, I'm not sure what exactly they're, they're talking about. Pro they, they might be uh, referring to the fact that there's something called adrenochrome where they, you know, they, they take, they, they're taking children's blood and devouring it and so forth. Uh, and I've explained my experience with that, and, and I just did in West Africa and other places. Um, we've seen this in, in several parts of the continent of Africa, and it's very real. It's very real, this witch doctory. They take these children. We, they, they, they take their organs. They take their blood. They, 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 they drink it. They take the genitalia of children and, and hang it over the rooftop of their businesses, thinking that the, the dark gods will bless them. These are real things. Um, and so I might say something like that, and then they connect it to something uh, that a QAnon person says about, you know, a celebrity who must be doing this too, but there's no evidence to back that. And they make they make a, a false connection there. Um, and and so that's that's the only example I can think of. Okay. And there was Jordan Peterson at the end. Okay. But, <laughs> but um, yeah, so it seems like he might be, in fairness to him, like he might be a little confused, like he's associating the just the, the name or word adrenochrome with, I don't know, blood drinking or harvesting blood or whatever from children. But it, it sounds like he might not even know exactly, chemically speaking, what adrenochrome is. He's just associating the word with people trying to harvest something from children and did he really witness what he's describing? Was he in Africa and he witnessed people harvesting blood and organs from children in order to gain some kind of power or whatever it is from it? I don't know. I mean, that's pretty wild. I mean, people all over the world do some brutal stuff, especially in third world areas, etc., where you have bands of gorillas and people, you know, just indulging their dark sides and doing all sorts of things to war captives, etc. Uh, we still have slavery all over the world uh, and slavery in Africa, where you have kind of warlords, etc., taking slaves, abusing them, selling them, uh, committing all sorts of atrocities against them. So is it impossible that he witnessed people doing horrible things to children, maybe even killing children, and maybe even engaging in some kind of superstitious stuff like using body parts because they thought they could gain some kind of power or divine protection from it. I mean, all of that's possible, but just the way he's talking, it doesn't sound like the specific harvesting of adrenochrome was ne necessarily going on. If what he says is true, he may have witnessed people harvesting, as gruesome as it is, blood or parts from children. And he just said, oh, they're trying to get something, so it must be that adrenochrome I've heard about. And of course, there's also the possibility that there might be some exaggeration going on, you know, on his part. Uh, I, I don't know. And none of this is me trying to disparage or poo-poo the movie, you know, The Sound of Freedom. As I understand it, it's actually doing quite well. Interestingly enough, I think it was sitting on the shelf for years, and here it is, it finally got released, and it's, uh, it's become something of a hit. And uh, I've read reviews, and it seems like even mainstream critics have been giving it positive to fair reviews. 
And uh, I think it's kind of being put in the same genre of film as, say, those Liam Neeson Taken movies. And yeah, so from what I understand it, it's not some amateurish straight-to-video piece of garbage. It's actually a fairly competent film that even critics have uh, received fairly well. I think it would be fair for someone to wonder, given how the man it's based on is throwing out terms like adrenochrome and satanic ritual abuse, it might be fair to wonder how much of it is actually based on true events. But either way, that doesn't change the fact that uh, the movie is apparently surprisingly good, and a, a lot of people like it, once again, including critics. But I mentioned I had some other clips. There's a podcast I've been aware of for a long time, but I've never listened to it or watched it on YouTube, and I found it in my feed. And um, I think it's Pod Save America, and it's probably safe to say it's a left-leaning podcast. And they were talking about QAnon and Adrenochrome, and the guest, I think, was someone who used to be right-wing, was kind of raised in a conservative household, and he now helps shine a light on some of this conspiratorial stuff. So I'll play some of those clips. Here's the first one. Yeah, I'd love to. Um, Sure. So, you know, it, it is so sprawling and there's all these different factions and stuff, so it can be kind of hard to, like, boil it down. But the the core beliefs are pretty simple. Um, they think the this nefarious cabal has run the world for hundreds, maybe thousands of years. Um, and now the cabal is made up of people in Hollywood, in banking, in the Democratic Party. I mean, John, I'm sure you're on the list as well. Oh, you're, yeah. You know, the whole gang. Mm -hmm. um, and that they, this cabal, why do they run the world, right? Um, well, because they want to drain children's blood to stay alive forever in satanic rituals. And so this kind of calls back to Pizzagate as well. Um, and so, the, and then the second part of QAnon is that the military recruited Donald Trump to run for president and basically said, you know, we're sick of this cabal. Only Donald Trump can take them on. And that someday there's going to come a moment called the storm when Donald Trump is going to arrest all of his enemies. And if you're a QAnon believer, your enemies, by extension, everyone from, uh, you know, Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton to Tom Hanks and Oprah uh, and execute them at Guantanamo Bay. And then for everyone else, there's going to be a sort of utopia after that. So that's sort of the, the fundamentals of QAnon. So that all makes a lot of sense. Um, <laughs> it's it's clear that they're on to us. Um, yeah, and once again, as far as I'm aware, QAnon is a movement that literally arose out of 4chan, which is, as I was getting into earlier, this kind of online cesspool, this um, kind of message board or forum where people would go to kind of shitpost, as the, uh, the kids like to say, and try to outdo each other by trying to post um, shocking and irreverent content, etc. So the fact that a movement that is supposed to be preoccupied with the safety and well-being of children arose out of that environment is kind of uh, ironic and suspicious. And it's kind of funny because it starts out as a product of internet culture, and then you end up with Elderly people walking around with big Q's on their shirts and carrying, uh, you know, picket signs with big Q's on. It's it's wacky. But I'll play the next clip. <laughs> I hadn't realized that part of the QAnon conspiracy has its roots in very old conspiracies like the blood libel. Um, can you talk about that and why, why? What do you think the connection is between some of these old conspiracies 
and 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 the QAnon conspiracy today and and why do you think these anti-Semitic tropes tend to have such staying power and keep appearing throughout different parts of history? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm glad you brought that up. Um, you know, it, all these institutions I mentioned are also often very stereotypically Jewish ones, uh, you know, banking, Hollywood, these things. So there is this this root in this medieval blood libel when, you know, this idea that Jewish people, rabbis were kidnapping Gentile children and using their blood in Passover rituals. Um, and this would create these pogroms up until the 20th century where like thousands of people would be killed. Um, and so this this idea recurs in QAnon where this idea that, um, you know, all these Democrats, that George Soros is drinking children's blood. I mean, it, it's a pretty clear echo. Um, and in terms of why it comes back, I mean, I think often these conspiracy theories build on one another. Mm. Um, you know, QAnon people will, there's sort of this fundamental question in QAnon, like, why does this cabal do this stuff? And then, you know, they said, well, it's because they're getting this blood. They're, they need this blood to stay alive. And then they hearken back to some neo-Nazi writings or some Nazi writings. And so it kind of, it, it, it all builds on it. And it's true, as I was touching on earlier, there's centuries of anti-Jewish propaganda, lurid claims of, as they mentioned, uh, Jews harvesting Gentile children for their blood, um, or Jews poisoning wells, etc., uh, characterizing Jews as Christ killers. And that blows my mind. It's something I used to talk about a lot in the early days of the show. Sadly, there's even a lot of Christians who are anti-Semitic when Christianity is essentially a Jewish religion. It's an offshoot of Judaism. It's kind of the daughter religion of Judaism. And Jesus, if there was a historical Jesus, I'm agnostic on the historicity of uh, Christ. I, I can go either way. I could easily see there actually being a historical figure, Yeshua, who is this charismatic teacher or spiritual figure who ended up getting crucified by the Romans and a religion formed around him. Or I could also see him being kind of a uh, mythic composite figure that arose later. Um, either way, but Jesus would have been Jewish. His apostles would have been Jewish. The crowds he preached to would have been Jewish. I believe it's thought that three out of the four gospel writers probably would have been Jewish, with the exception of Luke, who is considered or thought to be a Gentile traveling companion of Paul. Paul, formerly Saul of Tarsus, Jewish. You know, so um, Christian anti-Semitism has never made a lot of sense to me. Yeah, if the story is true, the uh, Pharisees, etc., the people who would have betrayed Jesus, according to the story, handed him over to the Romans, pushed for his execution. Yeah, they would have been Jewish, but the heroes of the story essentially would have been Jewish too. Jesus, the like I said, the apostles, uh, people we think favorably of, like Mary, the mother of Jesus, uh, Joseph, um, another Joseph, Joseph of, Joseph of Arimathea. Yeah, so it's very selective. Oh, we're going to hate the Jews because some Jews, if the story is real, are the ones who are at least partly responsible for Jesus's death. But we don't reserve the same kind of disdain for the Romans, who are the ones who actually nailed him to a cross. You know, so, uh, yeah, um, Christian anti-Semitism has never made sense to me. Never mind the fact all the biblical patriarchs, all the um, Old Testament figures that Christians revere, big surprise, Jewish, you know. Anyway, next clip. Not to get in too deep on, on, the, on the blood question, 
But I, I also hadn't realized that. So the reason that the cabal is drinking the kid's blood is because there's something called adrenochrome. Yes. And that's supposed to make you live forever. Is that the that the whole thing? Yeah. And the origin story here is really, really bizarre, even by QAnon standards. So in the, the adrenochrome is a real thing. It, it comes from oxidizing adrenaline. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's, it's actually like pretty easy to, to come across. Um, you could take an EpiPen and, and, and open it up. Um, you do not. In, so you don't need to drink children's blood. It, 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 that's it. <laughs> That's only additive, yeah. I mean, it essentially has no medical purpose in the real world. Um, But in the 60s, these counterculture writers, you know, it sounds cool, right? It sounds like the ultimate drug. Um, And so someone like Hunter S. Thompson wrote about it in Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. And in that book, there's a line where his lawyer says, you know, you can only get this drug from a pedophile, you know, and you drain it from a a child's brain or something like that. Um. And that then this becomes, for QAnon people, they're like, holy moly, this is real. And so that kind of builds on these other things. And so they believe that, you know, essentially the only way to get adrenochrome, which is how celebrities stay looking so young. I mean, they, they don't understand like Botox, I guess. So all this stuff is like lost in that. And so instead yeah, come, it's like, come oh, to the- LA, just, just check well, it out. And so, you know, during the pandemic, when these shows had to go, like talk shows had to, you know, go, uh, go from home or over zoom, suddenly everyone's looking more tired. They don't, it's not that the makeup people aren't working. It's that the adrenochrome has been disrupted. So that's the, that's the origin of it. And, you know, you'll see people like at these rallies and stuff and they'll say, you know, I'm, not you know don't drain me like i've seen kids with shirts that say like i'm not pizza you know meaning like don't eat me for adrenochrome oh my god and so there was the part where he says you can basically get adrenochrome from an EpiPen, and i'm not sure if he's saying you can take the epinephrine from an EpiPen and then somehow oxidize it into adrenochrome or if once you open the EpiPen, it becomes oxidized. I don't know. I think I actually have a couple of EpiPens I've never used in my car. That would definitely get me bad if I did a, a little experiment on YouTube trying to convert epinephrine from an EpiPen into adrenochrome. But uh, yeah, I used to get allergy shots and I probably should still be getting them. But I fell out of the habit during um, during the lockdown when everything was locked down or shut down and I just never started up again. But even though I've never needed an EpiPen in my life, just as a precaution, they used to make you get one in order to get the shots. So I'm kind of tempted. I'm kind of, can I make my own adrenochrome? And should someone who's currently been wrestling with uh, depression and anxiety be be making homemade adrenochrome and taking it? I don't know. Probably not. Anyway, I've been going at this for a long time. I think I'm going to call this episode a wrap. As always, thank you everyone so much for listening. Uh, You guys know the drill. You can like the Facebook page. You can follow the show on Twitter or X, even though I'm not on there much. You can check out the YouTube channel. Um, Maybe you're doing that now. If you'd like to help the show out monetarily, you can go to patreon.com slash theweekendout and help support the show for as little as 99 cents a month. All right, brothers and sisters, until next time.